continue in the book of Acts today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. Um, fair warning, it's kind of a perplexing chapter. And we are going to read the entire chapter together today. Or I should say, I'm going to read it aloud and have you follow along. So, uh, it's 44 verses. If you had a goal today of reading an entire chapter of the Bible, you can check that off in a few minutes. Because uh, we're going to do that together. So, uh, we've been studying the book of Acts now. This is week 41, so we've been here for a while. And um, we've seen verse after verse, chapter after chapter, story after story of uh, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension being preached, proclaimed, people coming to faith in Jesus, churches being started, um, and um, people being delivered from all kinds of things that had power over their life. We have all these amazing stories, but when we get to this chapter, we don't see any of that. Uh, there is no gospel being preached. Um, nobody is coming to Christ that we know of, uh, and the church is hardly even mentioned. Uh, but instead, we have like a long story of a storm and a shipwreck filled with all kinds of like nautical and navigation details. So it's like a different thing. But in this storm at sea, what we're going to see is a powerful, beautiful picture of hope for all of our lives. And we're going to talk about anchors where we can anchor our hope. And so uh, what we're going to do is I'm just going to read the story. So again, it's 44 verses, so just hang with me. Uh, and I just want to let God's work do what God's, God's word do what God's word does. And so here's what I want to invite you to do as I listen and you read, as I read and you listen and read along. I want to invite you uh, to look for kind of the low moment, the, the depth of despair moment in this story. And then I want you to look for uh, what happens right after that or listen for what, right hap what happens right after that. So look for the moment where everybody loses hope and then look for what is going to happen right after that. So Acts chapter 27, you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one in one of the seats near you. There's even large print ones if you need that. Um, and then we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 1 to 44. All right, here we go. Big chunk of text. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of the Admiridium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the, under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurions found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Cnidus, as the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, I just have to tell you, I wish all the names of all the places were just like Fair Havens, because these words are hard. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. 
And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew greatly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Ceuta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, we, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run along Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. All right, we're halfway there. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found uh, 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food and have, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength. For not as a hair is to perish from the head of any one of you. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any one of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the udders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. All right. So... Did you see the deepest kind of moment of despair in that chapter in Acts 27? Look again, starting at verse 20. 
When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then he says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail. And then he urges them, take heart. But then he says, right, right after that, don't be afraid uh, because he had this, this vision where he was told, don't be afraid. You have to stand before Caesar. And so he, here's why this is important for us to see. Here's why this statement from Paul to this scared group of sailors uh, and prisoners is really important for our life where we find ourselves right now, right? First, we, we have to face the obvious. There are storms in this life, right? Figurative ones, but also sometimes literal ones. Uh, and and they, they can mess things up. They can mess up little small things like your daughter's softball game getting canceled because it rained too much in a literal storm. And, and metaphorical and literal storms can alter your life forever or maybe even take your life. And so we've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. And in fact, in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 11, in 2 Corinthians 11, he basically gives a summary of all the things, all the storms he's faced on his missionary journeys in Acts. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. Not once, not twice, but three times. Uh, he's in constant danger. He's hungry all the time. He's thirsty. This is Paul's life. And we know his famous words, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've had a lot, I've had nothing, and I can do all things. And so after all that, at the very end of this story, you would think maybe, you know, Paul would catch a break. But no, not, not Paul. As he's transported to Rome, we have this massive storm. It's called a northeaster in the text there. It's basically a hurricane. Uh, wrecks the ship he's on, and it's, he's on this ship with a bunch of prisoners. And so stories like this in the Bible are in there for a reason, and they're important for us to read, which is why God in his wisdom made certain to have them be in the Bible, right? Now, why would this story be important for us? Why would it be important for us generally, but particularly why is it important for us as a people living in the time that we live in? Well, generally it's important because if God has it in the scriptures, it's for us. But I think for us in particular, it's because we live in a time where one of the more insidious ideas that's kind of under the surface in our sort of stream of Christianity as part of our church that creeps into the lives of us as followers of Jesus and even sometimes into the teaching of the church uh, is that if you follow God, everything's going to be fine all the time. That if you follow God, nothing bad will happen to you. There are literally thousands and thousands of people. This is a big issue in the world of missions, that we have exported this sort of prosperity teaching to places around the world with abject poverty, and people get sucked into it. And so there's thousands and thousands of people here in our community and even around the world who buy into this theology that if you have faith in God, everything will be great in your life. Now, there's sort of, there's a spectrum of how this works, right? There's the overt version that we see typically on TV or online or whatever, where if you just have faith, you can name it, you can claim it. It's like this synergistic, weird thing of like manifesting that's going on right now with Christianity and saying, if I just have faith, then I can name it and claim it. And I have my best life now. I'll have health. I'll have wealth. I'll have possessions, material prosperity if I just trust in God. And if I don't have those things, it's because I don't have enough faith. 
But there's also a more subversive version of this that we have to watch out for. And we've talked about this a lot. But this is the one where even unconsciously, we treat God like a cosmic vending machine, right? I put in good works and I get out health and wealth. Or I get out good relationships. Or my kid does well in school. Or whatever that thing is. If I live right, then God will bless me. Maybe some of us are watching this online or you're in this room right now. And this is your putting the token in the machine of the cosmic vending machine of God, right? We think that this will get God to keep me safe or to bless me financially or whatever. We were even kidding around about this in, the t- in our prayer time before service started. That, uh, you know, I'll, we better get to prayer on time so God will bless us. Like we were kidding, but we have to be careful because that gets in our mind. That's kind of the air we breathe. We, we think that if we do the right things, then God blesses me financially or whatever. And what's going to happen is you're going to be frustrated. If you think that, you're going to walk out of here and be frustrated later this week when you have a flat tire or your kid gets a cold or you have a frustrating interaction with a coworker or whatever. Because you're like, wait a minute, we made a deal and God never made you that deal. But, but as we read our Bibles, we realize that this kind of reality is just not true. It's not what the Bible teaches If you're honest, it's not what your own life experience teaches you. The Bible actually teaches us the opposite. It actually teaches us that followers of Jesus and everyone else in general are going to face all kinds of storms in this world. And so if prosperity teaching is true, then what do we do with all the disciples and the Apostle Paul here? Did he not have enough faith? Is that what we're supposed to think? Right? Paul, if you would have just trusted God, you wouldn't have had to write 2 Corinthians 11. That doesn't make any sense. Life would have been easy and prosperous for you if you just had enough faith. But Paul knew that followers of Jesus will face storms in the life. He actually said back in Acts 14, 22, to a group of brand new Christians. This is Paul's like discipleship 101, right? People who are brand new to following Jesus. What's the first thing? Hey, many tribulations are going to be what you have to go through to enter the kingdom of God. That's his... First thing he wants to teach them. New believers in the New Testament uh, knew that when they followed Jesus, when they followed Christ, they're going to face storms and difficulties. And we all know that's true, right? We've all been caught in the middle of a hurricane, or we we haven't been caught in the middle of a hurricane, have you? Um, This week, many of nobody probably has this week, right? Uh, I have been in a boat in a really bad storm, and it's pretty scary. Um, But many of us are living in the middle of some kind of storm in your life right now. You might be living through uh, a physical storm affecting your health, maybe a diagnosis or a process you're going through. Maybe uh, you are walking through a relational storm. Maybe there's relationships around you with coworkers or family members or kids or whatever that are strained or maybe even broken. And you're walking in that storm like, what is God going to do to help me? For some of us, maybe it's emotional storms, struggles that we deal with, this feeling that we just can't seem to get rid of, a darkness that clouds over us that we just can't seem to get rid of. And for some of us, these, most of us, these storms come and go, right? You go through a storm, you kind of come out on the other side and life goes on. But others of us feel like we're living in the middle of the storm, we can't see our way out of it, and maybe you've been in that storm for so long that it's pretty tough to imagine life what it was like before the storm. I don't know if you've ever been in a really bad physical storm, but when you're in the middle of that fear 
it's pretty tough to think about what the world is like when it's not the storm. And it's hard to see. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible. It doesn't, like, gloss over the reality of the world. A story in, of the storm in Acts 27, it's not like a disconnected Bible story. It's, it's close to us. We can relate to uh, this storm because we go through storms as well. And we have stories like this to show us how to hope in God when we face the inevitable storms that life brings. And so what we don't need is somebody to stand up here and say, just have enough faith and everything will be great. That would not be loving. That would not be truthful. That would not be honest. Uh, what we need is God's word continuing to remind us by saying, hey, there's going to be storms, but here's what you do in the midst of them. Here's how to think. And so um, because what Paul says in verses 21 to 26 uh, is so pivotal, I, I just want to kind of hang there for the rest of our time. The Holy Spirit has given us uh, five anchors, okay, five anchors to hang on to when we face the inevitable storms in this life. So my hope for you is you walk out of here having something more to hang on to when you walk through these storms in life. So number one, we can remember that God is supremely sovereign over all things. Now, what this means is that his power and authority over all things is an anchor for your life. It's in the middle of the storm, in the middle of despair, you can hang on to the reality that God is Sovereign, look at verse 23 in Acts 27. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, keep in mind who Paul's talking to here, right? He's talking to a ship full of unchristian uh, pagan. That doesn't mean what it means now. Pagan just means those who don't follow Jesus. It's not a, a negative thing or an insult. But a ship full of pagan soldiers and prisoners who worshipped all kinds of gods. Right? This is the ancient Roman world. They, they had all kinds of gods they were likely worshiping. And so you can only imagine in the course of the storm how many gods are being prayed to. And, right? In the middle of something like that, people are praying to whatever god they got. So Paul steps on the scene and says, hey, actually there's only one god who has authority and power over the wind and the waves, and it's actually my god. And, and that's huge because Paul knows that his God, the one true God, no other God, holds the wind and the waves and the universe, the scripture says, by the, by, the, by the power of his word. And so that's the first anchor in the middle of the storm when you're walking through storms in this life. It's the solid confidence in knowing that you actually follow and serve the God who is sovereignly powerful over all things. Now, there's some mystery that goes with this, right? Because if you're like me and you, you tend to be a little skeptical, the next question that's going to pop in your head is, well, then why allow the storm? If he's actually sovereign, right, why allow the storm? And we're going to get to the why question at the end this morning. But before we get to the why, we need to kind of spend time on the who. Who is ultimately sovereign over all things, including the difficult things that you've walked through in your life, maybe that you're walking through right now. God is sovereign over those. Of course, the answer the Bible gives is the God of the Bible. And even Paul, in dealing with what the scriptures called his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, which we could say is a kind of a storm that he was walking in, he said that God was sovereign even in his weakness. That God is sovereign over his life even in weakness. 
And so in the middle of those storms that you're in right now, or the ones that you will be, um, you can hold tight to this anchor that God is sovereign over all things. Now, what you don't want to do is try to comfort yourself by thinking that sickness or whatever disease you're dealing with or difficulty or evil or injustice in your life is sovereign over all things. No, it's not. God is sovereign over those and he will use those even in your life for his glory. So the God that you worship, the good, the wise, the gracious, merciful, powerful God who you worship is in heaven. The scriptures say he's in heaven and he does all that he pleases and he reigns supreme over everything. So that's the first anchor. The second is coming alongside of it. When you're in the storm, you anchor our heart, our mind in the reality that God is sovereign, but that he is with us. That's the second anchor. He's sovereign over all, and he's not distant. He's close. Paul says, an angel of my God came to me, and he told me not to be afraid. We've seen this all over Acts. We see it all over the scripture. When God continues, his movement is to come towards us. His movement is not to stand back and go, you deal with it yourself. His movement is to come towards us. We ultimately will see that pretty soon when we get to the season of Advent, and we see God with us in Jesus, that God's move is to come towards us. He's continually coming to his people and saying, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Don't be afraid, I'm coming to you. Um, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 46 when we think about God's presence with us in the storm. That psalm has this refrain in it twice. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So that's a refrain in there. So we want to hear this. That in the middle of the storms of life, the God of the universe, the God who reigns supremely sovereign over all things, he'll never abandon you. He's never far from you. You can run as far as you want from God. And the moment you begin to even turn just a tiny bit, you'll find that he's right there. He, he's never far from you. He's always there and coming to you and wants to be with you. And so when you trust him, you can know you're never alone. The God of the universe has promised to be with you. Jesus said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So that's the first two. The third anchor for us to hang on to in the middle of the storms of life is that God owns us. This is a little weird, for a little different for us. Look at Acts 27, 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's a that's a really great phrase. It's not just a God that I worship, but I actually belong to this God. I belong to him. So think about what does that mean? How does God become the owner of my life? Think about the language Paul uses in, in other places like 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is how God takes loving ownership of your life. And this is really, really important for us, particularly for those who are not yet Christians, to, to hear. Every one of us in our lives has sinned against God, we've rebelled against God, and as a result, the Bible says we're separated, we're alienated from God, we're not close to Him. And if nothing changes, we will die in that state of alienation. But God makes a way for every one of us to be reconciled. Remember, his move is to come towards us. His move is to reunite with us, to reconcile. He's come to us. How? In Jesus, in the flesh. 
And so he paid the price for our sin, for our rebellion, when Jesus died on a cross for us, so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are what? We are now reconciled. We are brought back into relationship with God, and we are bought by him in that sense. There's a bunch of different ways to think about what Jesus has done on the cross. We would call these theories of the atonement, the atonement being the, the, the act that makes us right with God. And one of those is this idea that this idea called the ransom theory, that Jesus pays this price for us to be bought back from Satan. And there are parts of that, there are aspects of that that are beautiful. And for us today, this is what we mean by God owns us, that he, he has power and control over my life. So the invitation for all of us is the same invitation it always is, right? To, to, that if you've never trusted to G Jesus to save you, to reconcile you, to reunite you to God, then let today be that day that he purchases you back from the power of the devil over your life. You, you can walk out of this room knowing what Paul knew, that this is the God to whom I belong. And so for the Christians, though, in, in the room and watching online, we might think, what does this ownership of my life actually mean in practice? What does it mean to belong to someone? Well, I think the easiest relationship that I can think of right now because of my particular stage of life is my family, right? I have kids. Uh, and so what does it mean for them to belong to me? In my family, it means something even more particular because of the beauty of adoption. So what does it mean for my kids to belong to me? Well, it means that I'm responsible for them. That, that I've taken, by choice and legal action, personal responsibility to care for them, to provide for them, to protect them. It means that I love them. They don't even understand how much I love them. They're not going to get that for a long time. I have a personal interest in their well-being, right? It means that I work on their behalf. I do things for them that they don't even appreciate. All the parents are like, yeah, right? So think about this. God's word says that we are his adopted children, that he has chosen to adopt you into his family by faith. And it says all those things about us as his kids. So let that soak in, not just kind of generally, yeah, that's cool, God adopted us. No, but think about like you, where you're sitting, the supreme God of the universe, who you made yourself distant from. You were hostile to him. He has taken personal responsibility to care for you, to provide for you, to protect you. Why? Because he loves you more than our languages can express. God has a personal interest in your well-being. He is working on your behalf. And that is an amazing thought. So in the middle of the storms of this life, what you know is God is sovereign. He's with me and I belong to him. He has a vested interest in my good. And so in a world of sin and suffering and evil and injustice and hurt and pain, in a world where September 11th happened, God has assumed responsibility for our care and our provision and our well-being. Now, hang on to this because this is really important for us that God owns us. So here's the fourth one. We can depend on God's promises that he has made to us in his word. 
Paul says, this God whom I belong to, whom I worship, has appeared to me and he has spoken. And then Paul tells them that he's promised not to just bring him, but all of the people with him through the storm. And then he says, look at his language in, in verse 25 in Acts 27. So take heart, take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul is saying, I know the character of this God, and I trust that if he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, you might think, I wish God would come in a vision to me like that. Like, show up in my dream and be like, here's what's going to happen. He, he, tell me when the storm's going to end, how it's going to end. What's, and he certainly has the power to do that. He could do that. But this is where I want you to realize that we actually have an advantage that Paul didn't have. We may think it'd be helpful to have some sort of vision like Paul had, and maybe it would be in a certain situation. But you need to realize that you actually have everything you need. In the seats all around you, maybe on your phone, on my computer, we have the scriptures, the Bible, which contains 66 books filled with stories and stories and stories and promises from God from his mouth for you and for me in the middle of our storms. If we had the time, we could keep going uh, literally all day and we could just go through the Bible looking at the promises that God has for us. So take heart. There are promises from God and you can trust that when God says what he's going to do, he's going to do that. He will be faithful to every single one of his promises, even if you can't understand how he's going to be faithful. Now, I want to be careful in saying that because I can't guarantee, the Bible doesn't guarantee that every, every storm that you or I walk through is going to end in this world the way we want it to end. Nobody can guarantee that. So I don't have some prophetic word from God that the storm you're facing right now in your life or your marriage or your family or your health or at work or whatever will end the way that you want it to end in this world. I don't have that guarantee for you. But what we do have, what the Bible has guaranteed for us, is that God will ultimately bring us through whatever storms we face in this world. He will bring you through those. He will be present with you. And he is sovereign over all of those things. He has loving ownership over, over our lives and we can depend on his promises. And fifthly, we can hold on to God's ultimate purpose in the world. Now, this is the why that we wanted to get to. Why... Is God allowing all these things that are happening to Paul? Now, I, I just want to do an exercise with you. Without turning your head, I want you to fully know what's happening behind you right now. Right? You can't. You don't have eyes back there. I know us parents, we think we do, but we don't. We don't know what's happening behind us. You have no idea what's going to happen in 30 seconds, and neither do I. I have a plan, but I don't know. And so just because you can't see how a storm will fit into God's plan doesn't mean that it doesn't. It means you can't see. Why is God allowing all these things that are happening to Paul? His arrests, his beatings, his imprisonments, and now storms. It's a question we see all over the scriptures. If you're like, that's a problem I have with Christianity, I would say you're right in line with the Psalms. David says, why, God, are you allowing this? How long, Lord, are you going to do this? Why does God lead Joseph to be sold into slavery and unjustly thrown into prison? Why does God allow Job to experience all the suffering he does? 
right? Uh, there's more than that in stories and the scriptures. And it's not just scriptures, it's our lives. We all want to know why we walk through the things we walk through. Why is this happening? But I want you to notice here that Acts 27 does not give us an answer to that question. We can guess how God was going to use this to strengthen Paul and his faith and how God was using this as a testimony to these prisoners and these soldiers on board. And we can only hope that some of, some of them maybe came to place their faith in God as a result of this. But we don't know why, which is often the case with us, right? Maybe you're thinking right now, like, I wish I knew why whatever was happening. We can guess. Sometimes we can see God is using storms in our lives for our good. Or for others good, sometimes you get around somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time and, and they've been growing in him and you ask them about this question, oh, they'll be able to point back and go, oh yeah, that thing that I went through, man, I had no clue why God was taking me through that. But now, on the other side of it, I can go, I learned how to suffer well. Or I learned how to walk with Jesus in that and that was worth it. But we're left to wonder why. And this is where uh, the famous promise from Romans chapter 8 comes into play where it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's the key. What's his purpose in Paul and in us? It says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, don't get all worried about that. This is the important part. This is what God is doing, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that's what God's up to in your life. If you follow Jesus, that's what God is up to. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is making you a brother with Jesus. You, you are that. You're his brother, his sister. That's what we are together as a church. We're brothers and sisters walking together, being conformed to the image of, the son, of Jesus, our brother, God's son, in the midst of those storms. So the ultimate purpose of God is to conform us. Now, I like that language because it, it shows God's sovereignty, right? It doesn't say God's purpose is to invite us. No, it says conform us. That means there's some molding into the image of Jesus in glory. Because that text goes on to say, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's purpose is to conform you into the image of, to make you like Jesus and share his glory with you. That's pretty amazing. You don't and I don't deserve to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And certainly we don't deserve to share in God's glory. But that's how he is with us. He comes towards us in love, even in the midst of these things. So God's ultimate purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ and be in glory forever with him. That's his ultimate purpose. And that is your greatest good. So one day, you and I are going to be free from sin and its effects. We will be free from sin's power over us and we will be free from the curse of sin that brings storms in our world. Free from suffering, we're going to be glorified with Jesus forever. And God is working everything towards that end. So we have hope in the middle of storms because of that. That is our eternal, everlasting hope. 
So our hope is not just in getting through the storms in this life and then having the storm end in this world. We know this is a world of sin and suffering. And in this world, there's a sense in which we're not surprised by sin and suffering, right? Jesus said, don't be surprised. Take heart. I have overcome the world. We, we mourn over sin, but we're not surprised that sin and evil and suffering are real. And we're not surprised that when we face storms, because we know that we are not immune to this to the, to the evil in this world. As Christians, we're not immune. But at the same time, we know that there's a day coming, there's a new heaven and a new earth, when these storms will be no more. And this is where we anchor our hope in God's purpose in the world. And this is huge for how we actually face the storms when we're in the storm. See, because if we simply use God to try to get through the storms in this life without actually having a real relationship with him through faith in Jesus, then we're back to treating God like a cosmic vending machine where we see him as a means to an end instead of the end himself. But on the other hand, if you face the storm and you have that relationship with him, then it doesn't matter what happens in the storm. It doesn't matter. Even to the point of if you live or die in that storm, because with your hope in God and your trust in God, you have literally nothing to fear. Not even death itself. That's an eternal blessing because you've been anchored in Him. You've anchored your life in God's ultimate purpose in your life to bring you to be with Him in glory for eternity to this place that we call so often heaven where there will be no more sin, no more evil, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more pain, no more relational strife, no more death in a place where God will literally wipe every tear from our eyes and in a place where there will never be any of the storms of life again. So we anchor our hope there. We don't anchor our hope in anything in this world. We anchor our hope where God's promise uh, tells us that he is bringing us, conforming us to the image of Jesus, bringing us with him into glory for the world to come uh, in his kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for the stories of these, the, today's story of, of a storm that your apostle went through, literally, so that we could read it and see in the way that he responded and the way that he acted in the storm for those storms metaphorically that come up in our life, that we would be, like he was, a witness to those who are with him in the storm. Father, we thank you for the, the reality that we see in your scriptures, that those who know you and those who don't know you both can be on a boat in the same storm together. And so you've called us to be the one who is willing to stand up and say, this God who has ownership over my life, who is sovereign, who I worship, he's with us. And we can invite people to come and have relationship with you. So we thank you for that. And we ask for your blessing as we go out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.